Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is December the 7th, 2018. This is episode 2341 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Friday, so it is time for an expert counsel Q&A show. I want to throw out a, a request Um I, I got a ton of content from the expert council last week, right? Before I had to do last week's show, enough to do two shows. Uh, I have, I think, three or four expert council segments in the hopper for next week. I don't have a lot of questions out to the expert council, so if you've ever wanted to ask any members of the expert council a question, this is a good time to get them in before we hit the end of the year run and we have a two-week shutdown. So, how do you ask an expert council member a question? You send me an email, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. You put TSPC expert in the subject line. In the body of the thing, you say, Jack, my question's for expert council member, whoever that is. My question is, ask that question in one sentence, hit return twice, and then give me your details. You do that, I promise you, you are highly likely to get an answer from an expert council member. We have a great lineup today. Uh, I have Sean Mills on 12 volts versus AC for off-grid solar appliances. We have miniature cattle for beef on smaller homesteads with Darby Simpson. Choosing a fluid pump for automotive work with Charles Sandville, the humble mechanic. Making family, ve family vacations educational for homeschoolers and, well, really everyone with Mike and Sue LaPreeze. Of winter climates and wood stoves with Ben Falk. Extending radio communications on your property, taking a look at GMRS radios uh, with Tim Glantz. Finding your passion and making a living with it with Nicole Sauce. And a little segment I'm going to have at the end following up on Nicole's. Maybe you shouldn't make your passion into a business. Why not? We'll talk about it when we get there. With that, before we go ahead and get to your uh, questions for the expert council, let's take a look at this day in history. This, of course, is... A day which shall live in infamy, December 7th, 1941, Pearl Harbor Day. Um, since everybody will talk about that, since we've talked about that before, I decided to see, can I find something else for you poignant to the TSP audience for the day, December the 7th? And we can go back to a year that most of us are old enough to remember at least something about, 1993. Um I would have been in the army at this point. Um, just get actually just had having got out of the army, uh, not long after my long walk on the Appalachian Trail. I would have been down here in Texas uh, for a few months when this happened, and I have no memory of it. Uh, at this point in time, it's a little Spearco history here. I was uh, living with a roommate uh, in a one-bedroom apartment where I slept on the couch. I was working for about six bucks an hour in a warehouse packing boxes. Uh, this is young Jack Spierko time. I had a TV set with uh, one of the uh, you know makeshift antennas out of a uh, coat hanger out of a closet, and I didn't turn it on very often. I was into a lot of reflection and hanging out with people and trying to figure out my life at this point. And um, on a non-imposed but but actual media fast release, I don't remember this at all. But on December 7th, 93, we had what became called the Commute of Terror, 
Colin Ferguson opens fire on a Long Island Railroad commuter train from New York City, killing six and injuring 19. Other train passengers stopped the perpetrator by tackling and holding him down. Ferguson later attributed the shooting spree to his deep-seated hatred of white people. Colin Ferguson was a mentally unbalanced man from Jamaica who spent years on the West Coast before coming to New York in 93. On December 7th, he boarded a 5.33 p.m. train out of Penn Station carrying an automatic pistol. And as the train pulled into Garden City, Ferguson began running down the aisle and shooting passengers at random. Famous defense attorney William Kunstler initially represented Ferguson, but his strategy of arguing that Ferguson was not responsible due to black rage infuriated even Ferguson himself After firing Kunstler, uh, Ferguson decided to act as his own lawyer. Before I continue, can you imagine if somebody tried to use the defense of white rage? I think that people would be outraged, and I think that they should be. Okay? I just, yeah, it, it's ridiculous. Okay. Uh, in the resulting trial, which took place in July and January and February of 96, Ferguson opened by claiming he was not the shooter. He argued that a white man had stolen his gun and shot the commuters, then pinned the, pinned the crime on Ferguson. But he later changed his story, stating that a man who shared Ferguson's name and facial features was the real killer. When Ferguson asked nearly all of the surviving victims in turn to identify the killer under oath, they each pinned the blame squirrely on him. After the judge denied Ferguson's request, the President Clinton and Governor Como testify. Ferguson decided to go forgo his own right to testify. On February 17th, uh, the jury convicted Ferguson of six counts of murder and 22 counts of attempted murder. He received six life terms and will never be eligible for parole. Mentally unbalanced, I do say so. There's two big lessons here to take away from this. Number one, the police didn't stop this man. An armed citizen didn't even stop this man. It's New York. People were disarmed. But action stopped this man. Once this guy decided he was going to kill people, there were enough people that just said, nope, you ain't going to do that. And they risked their own lives, and they put this man down. And, you know, honestly, had they beat him to death, I don't think there would have been a problem. It might have been legally, but, you know, I don't think anybody today would be going, gee, I wish that guy was still around. No. Um, but in a situation where someone's trying to kill you, you need to use violence in return, even if you're outmatched. Run, hide, fight, and in a train, there's nowhere to run. So you have to you go, there's nowhere to hide, there's nowhere to run. That situation, you have to do what these people did, you go straight to fight. Uh, next, there's an old saying uh, when it comes to representing yourself in court. The man who represents himself in a court of law has a fool for an attorney and, as a, and for a client. And, and that's the case. I don't care if you are one of the best attorneys on planet Earth. You should be working through another attorney when you are in any kind of jeopardy like this. Even an actual attorney is not qualified to be their own attorney. You have the right, so you can do something, but just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should. I've used this example before, but nothing prevents you from finding a beehive, inserting your penis into it, and beating on the top of the beehive. You're allowed to do that. No one will stop you. But you probably shouldn't, and you probably shouldn't represent yourself in a court of law other than something like small claims court. With that, let's go ahead and get into it now. Just because you can doesn't mean you should, I'm saying. Um, let's start off with a question on off-grid living for Sean Mills. This one, I do talk about 12-volt appliances, and I do think they have a role 
in certain solar and wind-powered situations, especially mobile situations. Okay, But uh, I'm not exactly hip on building an off-grid cabin completely on DC appliances. Someone's asking about finding them and sending that question over to Sean Mills. Sean, what say you on this one? Hey, TSP community. This is Sean Mills with Hack My Solar. And today I've got a question on 12-volt DC for off-grid. So here's a question. Uh, what are your recommendations for 12-volt DC ceiling fans, lights, and TV power? Details. I'm constructing the shell of an off-grid cabin located in my property in central Arkansas. I already have an 1,100-watt solar panel system and a 400-amp-hour lithium battery bank. I would like to run a 12-volt system just for the basics, ceiling fans, interior lights, and USB outlets. But especially the fans seem hard to find non-portable tiny fans without lights built in. Any recommendations? I would also like to run a TV with antenna and also have a single AC outlet for miscellaneous AC needs. Is it more efficient to have a single local inverter for the less often used TV and outlet? Or go ahead and just have one large inverter and run the whole house in AC. Uh, so I guess technically that's two questions. So uh, the answer to your initial question is threefold. Uh, for one, Amazon has a very good selection of 12-volt appliances. Uh, there's a manufacturer called Sunlar, S-U-N-L-A-R, on Amazon. Uh, they're very reputable in terms of 12-volt appliances. And they actually have some nice uh, ceiling fans without built-in lights um, that you can get uh, for less than $50. Uh, other options include big truck stops for 12-volt appliances. I've seen some pretty interesting stuff in uh, truck stops that run on 12-volt. And RV stores and RV manufacturers uh, are also a great source for 12-volt lighting and ceiling fan, that type of thing. Uh, so if you want to go 12 volt, uh, those are all great options. Um, but with that being said, to answer your second question, my advice overall is to go 120. Um, there's savings on wiring cost. The thing you got to remember is the more amperage you're drawing, the bigger wire you need. And the further you run that wire, the bigger wire you need. And so... Uh, because we know that watts is a function of volts times amps, when we go from 12 volts to 120 volts, we're increasing the voltage tenfold. And so by definition, we're reducing the amperage tenfold. So, and, and that, that's the reason why most, you know, decent to large size, uh, off-grid cabins are going to be run on 120 volt. Um, it's also why we step up the voltage on a, uh, solar array uh, to get higher voltage so that we can use a more affordable wire run. Um, the availability and durability of appliances is another huge thing. 12-volt uh, appliances don't last very long. Um, I'm not saying they're not well-built. I'm just saying that 120-volt appliances are built way better because there's such a bigger market for them. Uh, ease of installation um, is another big thing. So... I'd run the whole house on 120. Um, I know a lot of people who who have dual systems, and those people typically run um, 12 volt right off the battery bank. But the house is actually wired through an inverter, and the whole house is 120. And if they need 12 volt for something, they just run it right off the bank. 
Um, and you don't need an ins- expensive inverter to do what you want to do. Uh, Energizer has a 3000 watt inverter with two built in uh, USBs and two, um, uh, 120 volt AC outlets for about $300 on Amazon. And with a 3000 watt inverter, you can do just about anything that you want to do. You could even go with a smaller, uh, Whistler or Cobra uh, that Stephen Harris, uh, recommends. Now, if you did it that way, you could wire the house up exactly the way you wanted. Uh, except for instead of going into a breaker box at the end of those wire runs, you do everything on two circuits. And then at the end, you just put outlets at the end. Uh, those outlets plug right into the outlets that are built into the, the inverter. Uh, then you wire the inverter into your battery bank and you're good to go. Uh, that, I think that what would be neat is take that inverter, mount it on a piece of plywood with some pre-drilled holes in it and take the ply, leave the, leave the inverter in your car and now you've got uh you know a mobile uh battery with uh inverter capability you've got the ability to run things in your house if your power in your main house goes down and when you go out to your off-grid cabin you you just take it out of the car hang it up using those pre-drilled holes plug in your two outlets that uh take care of the wiring in the house and you're good to go uh now you've got something that you can use for for multiple purposes so um, again, just to recap, Amazon, truck stops, RV stores, that's where you want to go for 12-volt appliances, uh, particularly uh, RV stores for lighting. They've got a great selection. Uh, but overall, you want to go 120-volt. It's it's easier. Uh, it's it's more economical in the long run and in the short run. Uh, well, hey, with, with that being said, thanks for sending the question in. Uh, this is Sean again at Hack My Solar. You can reach me at Sean at HackMySolar.com. Uh, or post on the blog or on the Facebook forum page as I'm on there a lot, and I'll be happy to uh, answer your questions or go into more depth. Thanks, and I look forward to talking to you again. You know, I, I agree. I think there's you know a few exceptions. Some of the uh, the 12-volt uh, refrigerators and freezers are really, really efficient, and if they can be located, let's say, right where your, your, your power block is, so you're not worrying about going to really heavy gauge wire over long distances. Uh, a lot of solar projects that are incorporated into mobile situations, a lot of times it's just easier to stick with the DC that you already have. But in the end, I think for an off-grid cabin, uh, I agree with Sean that the, in general it's probably easier, less expensive, and keeps you with more options um, to go with AC. And what it makes me think of is a, a term that we used to use in structured cabling. It's called open systems architecture. And you can never 100% get there with structured cabling because there's a voice block, there's a data block. Now almost everything's on on, on data anyway. You can you know, run VOIP and what have you. But the concept was trying to make cabling for computer networks a lot like a, an electrical outlet. So the thing about an electrical outlet is, with you know, a few rare exceptions, if you happen to have something that, uh, that, that, that uses a heavy power load and needs like a 220 circuit or whatever. But in general, when, when you need to plug an electrical device in, if you buy an AC-powered device, you can walk into any home or office building in America and look for a plug, and they all look the same, and you walk up to that plug and plug it in, and it works. And the goal in structured cabling was to get as close to that as possible. We have a computer, we plug it in, 
And assuming we have network credentials, it works. We can do whatever we need to do. And uh, so that was a goal there, and it's something we have with AC appliances, so going away from it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, if that makes sense. With that, let's go ahead and go on to a question for Darby Simpson on miniature cattle for beef production. Hey there, everyone. Darby Simpson back again with another question for the TSP Expert Council. And this week, I've got a question coming in from Maine, uh, where the uh, the writer Sean wants to know what my thoughts and opinions are on miniature cow breeds for meat on a small homestead. Uh, he's in southern Maine and wants to know if there are some breeds I might recommend. Uh, he's never raised large livestock, and I think that's a key thing when you're considering any kind of animal, uh, particularly something that's larger like a cow. So, Sean, um, when it comes to miniature cow breeds, uh, there's not a whole lot of them that I get real excited about. Um, oftentimes, they cost a lot of money. They take forever to produce a whole lot of meat. Um, and I, I know you're looking for a meat breed. Typically, when you say small cow and homestead, dual-purpose animals instantaneously come to mind. And I'll tell you the same thing I tell everybody else. When you're going after meat, stay away from a dual-purpose breed. So if you've got you know, a dual-purpose Dexter, for instance, that's something you would want to stay away from. Now, if you uh, get a, a, a Dexter animal that has been bred for meat production then, you know, that would be one breed that I would tell you to uh, to look into, to consider. Um, if you could find any, I wouldn't call them miniatures. Well, there is a miniature variety out there, but if you could find a smaller framed version of a Hereford, uh, they are excellent animals to have around. Um, and again, there are like the standard large Herefords, there are miniature Herefords, and then there are just some, you know, more moderately framed, smaller framed Herefords that I think you would probably be really happy with. Again, I wouldn't go after a true miniature breed. Uh, I just don't think they're going to produce what it is you're looking for. Uh, another animal that, you know, we have used here, uh, that we've been pretty happy with, uh, would be a low-line black Angus. That's a smaller-framed Angus. Uh, I don't know if there are any low lines up in the Northeast, per se. They've gotten pretty popular in the Midwest uh, and, and out West, for certain. Um, you know, they do really great in all-grass systems. Um, so if, if you could happen to find some of those around, I think you'd be very happy with them. They're not the friendliest cows in the world, but they're extremely docile. And they're very easy to handle, um, as are pretty much all the Herefords that I've had in my experience. So, um, but even if you, you know, if you can't find a low-line Angus, again, if you could find a a smaller framed black or red Angus, you know, just something that's smaller framed. We just don't want a giant animal. And I, I'm with you. I mean, one of the reasons we started with low lines was because they weren't scary. They weren't so big uh, that they were really intimidating. We had some intimidating cows here early on. So I, I get what you're going for there, particularly when you've never had cattle. Um, so I, you know, I think any one of those three would be a pretty good option for you. Or again, if you could just find a smaller framed um, beef producing out of, a, out of an all-grass system, if that's what you're going for, and you didn't say you were, um, but if you if you want to do all grass, then try and source animals from an all grass system, and just look for some smaller ones. Um, 
a lot of times, you know, the females will be smaller than the males. So that's something else to consider. But uh, those would those would be the tips that I would have for you. Um, you know, try and do some networking. You can start by looking on Craigslist. You can join some Facebook groups. Um, you know, here we've got like, you know, Southern Indiana uh, livestock and equipment Facebook group. There's a Central Indiana version of that. So see if you could find, you know, a Facebook group that's in your area. Um, try and network with other farmers in the area. You can you can reach out to some um, uh, farmers who sell beef at farmers markets. Ask them what breeds they have. Ask them if they'd ever be willing to sell off a stalker, you know, a yearling weaned animal that you can uh, just raise for yourself. Um, if they're not, do they know somebody who might be, and do they know somebody who might have a smaller framed animal? But the big thing I really want to drive home here, Sean, is that no matter what, particularly since you don't have any experience, um, and I don't know what your infrastructure is like because you, you didn't mention that, you want to look for docile animals. You want to look for animals that are easy to handle, that don't spook. Uh, preferably they're already trained to electric, um, healthy, and as close to home as possible. But the main thing is docility. If, if they're jumpy, it doesn't matter if they're tiny or huge. I mean, if they're huge, they're scary because they can hurt you. If they're tiny, well, they're just a pain in the butt because they get under every, uh, hot wire you have. They, you know, get into cattle feeders, they, uh, hay feeders that, you know, they, uh, they're just ornery. You know, and they're more just a pain in the butt like a, a pig that needs to go to freezer camp. So docile, grass-based, smaller framed, healthy, close to home, those are my tips. Thanks for sending this one in, Sean. Hey, listen, if any of the rest of you have a question you'd like for me to answer, feel free to send it on over to me at darby at grassfedlife.co. And if you're not familiar with Grassfed Life, uh, it's a website that uh, I own with my good friend Diego Footer. We've got about 115 podcasts out there on all things related to raising uh, pork and poultry and beef and selling it profitably or raising it for yourself. Lots of free resources out there, blog articles and different guides, uh, in addition to some paid-for resources that we have as well. But go on out and check out that website. Thanks for sending this one in, Sean. I hope that everyone has a wonderful weekend, and take care. You know, um, on what Darby was saying about dual purpose, I've been saying it for a very long time. I and, and I was not kind of switched on to this in the beginning. I always wanted everything to do as much as possible. I like function stacking. But uh, as soon as I got into kind of this, this modern era of my homesteading, uh, dealing with it's things as simple as chickens. If it's dual purpose, it excels at nothing. And so I, I think especially... On small scale, since you need to get the best bang for your buck, so to speak, it really makes sense to look for something purpose-built to what you really want. And then if what you want is a milk cow, then you get a milk-producing animal. And then when it's a coal at some point, meat is a byproduct and, and vice versa. If you want a meat animal, then stick to an animal. And I know that people say, well, I, I'm not really looking for milk, but if you're buying an animal that was made to be dual-purpose then I, I just don't think it's probably the best bet in most instances. Next up, I have a question for Charles Sandville, the humble mechanic on fluid pumps for doing maintenance on vehicles, in this case specifically transmission maintenance.
Hey everybody, it's Charles from HumbleMechanic.com taking your car-related questions. Today's car-related question comes from John. John's got a 2014 F-150 5-liter V8 with about 60K on it, and John wants to do his own transmission fluid service. Looks like the dealership's charging about 300 bucks for a couple of drain and fills, a new filter, and probably a new uh, transmission pan gasket, at least I would hope so anyway. Honestly, guys, that doesn't sound all that terrible to me but this is coming from a dude who works on cars that to have a 30 dollar liter of transmission fluid is not all that out of the ordinary so of course in my price bias uh 300 bucks doesn't sound all that much but let's talk about some ways maybe john can save some money and do this himself john's main question is is there an electric pump that can help him do this job. Like many new cars, John's F-150 does not have a dipstick for the transmission under the hood. It's got a tiny little one right at the transmission, so you have to crawl or creeper underneath the truck in order to check the fluid level. And for some crazy reason, John doesn't want to mess around with a tiny funnel or a little hand pump and uh, put, you know, I don't know, six, seven liters of transmission fluid into the transmission. John, I can't say that I would really blame you for not wanting to do that. Guys, I'll be very honest. I've never used the consumer level style pump that we're going to be talking about to do this job. Everything I've used has been pretty high dollar shop professional style equipment. And unless you want to spend, oh, 10 grand or so on a machine, that experience ain't going to do nobody no Good. So, John, I did some pump shopping for you and found that they kind of exist through the whole price spectrum, right? You have the really high-end, high-dollar stuff, the kind of pump that you can get every component, every gasket, every seal, all the internal guts for, replace them, rebuild them forever, and they're really expensive. For what you're doing, probably not what you're looking for. The flip side of that is I'm looking at a pump right now on Amazon. It's actually a pretty cool little pump. It's 18 bucks on Prime. And I'm thinking, man, 18 bucks is probably overpaying for this little pump. But let's look at it this way. This is a job you're going to be doing every eight years, give or take, even if we find all the uses for this style of extraction pump, right? Changing the oil in our lawnmower, changing the oil in our motorcycle, changing the transmission fluid in our other car, doing a transaxle service, doing a differential service, all the lubricants and all of our gas-powered equipment. You might be using this twice a year, three times a year's kind of max. So the way I would look at purchasing this, I would probably buy this $18 pump on Amazon. I'd probably buy two of them. And if the pump lasted me for the transmission service, I would be happy. I would almost treat it as a consumable for doing that job. And if it lasted longer, I would be really happy about that. So this little pump is a 12-volt pump. You'd hook it up to your vehicle battery. It's got a sucky side and a pumpy side. So when you're extracting the fluid out of your transmission, you'd put the end of the hose down the dipstick and extract as much fluid into a container as you possibly could, drop the pan, put your new filter in, reseal the pan, put it back up, and then flip those hoses the other way, put the sucky side into your clean fluid. I would run a little bit of clean transmission fluid through this pump just to make sure if there's any really nasty stuff in your fluid, you get it out of there. And then I would go to town, man. I would put roughly the same amount of fluid that I took out back in it and use that as a baseline to set my transmission fluid level. And if I were able to do all of that with this $18 pump and then at that last second the pump died, I would be okay with that. I think this would be the way I would approach it. 
If you don't want to go the electric pump route, there's a handful of other things. John mentioned the the little pump that he didn't want to use. They do sell pumps that screw onto the top of most fluid bottles, especially the one quart, one liter size bottles. And that's really great. That's what I used to do the transmission service on my car the last time I did it. And it worked just fine with two and a half liters or so of transmission fluid. Another thing that people do, which I really love the idea. Now, this isn't going to help you extract the fluid. This is going to be purely a fill method. So if you have a drain plug on your transmission pan, you could do something like this. And that's to modify one of those lawn and garden pump sprayers, kind you see at Home Depot all the time. These are super cheap. They're like 17 bucks too. And what you'll do is you'll cut the nozzle side off and put like a rubber hose on it. And you could put that down a little bit into the dipstick funnel and pump it up, squeeze the trigger and fill it that way. I like that method because it gives you a bit more control than the electric pump does. One of my only concerns with the electric pump is the lack of control. Sometimes these things can kind of get squirrely on you. So uh, I would worry about that. Make sure you're holding it. Don't ever let that hose go. Make sure you hold it on there while you're both extracting and filling back up because that will make a mess very quick. They also have a different style of extractor. I actually have a pneumatic one that works really well. I used it for oil changes all the time, but then you need an air compressor to run that. They have hand pump ones that work pretty well too, but those usually run like 80, 90, 100, 120 bucks, depending on which one you get. So even there, you're spending way more than you would just on that cheap little electric pump. A couple of warnings on those electric pumps though. They're not meant for gasoline, so don't pump gasoline through them. They're also not meant for water-based things like coolant. You wouldn't want to use this for coolant. These are for oils and lubricants only. Another tip is to have this fluid warm when you pump it. So you probably don't want the truck super hot, but maybe a swing around the block or two just to warm that fluid up. It's going to make those pumps so much easier, less stress on the little pump, and it'll pump much faster for you than if that fluid is stone cold. So John, I might buy a couple of those pumps and have them sitting around just in case one fails in the middle of a job. But again, if I were able to do that job complete start to finish with that pump one time and that's all I got, I'd probably be all right with that because I still saved a bunch of money from paying someone else to do it. So John, great question. I hope that helps. There's a hundred ways to uh, to fill these transmissions up. I like the electric pump. I like the pressure pump method. Whatever you got to do to get it in there and to try and make as little mess as possible. Again, great question from John. Guys, if you want to see more of my stuff, swing over to humblemechanic.com. Be sure to keep those car questions coming. Jack, TSP, have an awesome weekend, and I'll talk to you guys again next time. All right, uh, and I do have a link to the pump Charles mentioned on Amazon in the show notes for you guys today. Uh, next up, I have a question from Mike and Sue LaPreeze on making family vacations educational as homeschoolers, uh, but I think this really applies to anybody. Mike, Sue, take it away. This is Michael and Sue Laprise with HaloBySue.com, designing the life you'd love to live for the expert counsel. Hey, Jack. Hey, TSB community. First, we want to say we, we know we're a little bit behind. A little bit. A little bit behind. I think the last question we answered uh, mentioned that we had taken in three new new kids. Uh, two, two in diapers. Two in diapers. <laughs> and uh, our plate's been full. And we're starting to get our family life organized so that we're back to some sense of normalcy yeah so anyway it's good to be back so uh apologize if our questions aren't as, as timely as they, they could be so on with the question uh this question is for uh tips for planning and executing a vacation with a large family to optimize the experience for all and the details were i'm planning a float camping trip for a family of eight my six children are between the ages of 12 and one years 
I think the babies are going to stay with grandma. I want to make this an experience they won't soon forget. We're no strangers to local outings and things generally go smoothly, but this is a bit different. So we'll talk about that. So the first thing I would say is if you're going on an outing like this, a float trip, a camping trip, the first thing I would do is talk to a guide. Yeah, because some rivers are dangerous and you want to be super careful unless you're really familiar with it and you have lots of other adults going with you. Yeah, especially with little kids. So for this question, we've put our ideas in the following order. Why, how, who, what, where, and when. Since you probably want to decide on why you're going, how you're going to pay for it, who's going, what you'll see, where you'll stay, and when is the best time of year to accomplish your why. So a friend of ours, Curtis Cluett, wrote a great book called 3G, The Jews for Generations, The Art of Living Beyond Your Life. And family vacations are a key element of bonding, not the expense of the trip, but being together. Stop and be together. So our why, <clears throat> you know, you got to decide what that main purpose. Do we just want to get away and go camping? Do we want to visit family? Do we have a destination in mind? Like we want to go see Monticello because we love that. Um, is it just about the journey? Is it camping, camping to get outside and practice some of your preps? So we've been camping recently <laughs> with the little ones, and this isn't backpacking. <laughs> when you have a two, three, and four-year-old, we're not backpacking. It's car camping. But we're introducing them to sleeping in a tent, being in the outdoors, uh, new experience for them completely. Um, and that's a great budget item. If you think you can't get away, you really just need a tent for camping. And the rest of it, you can take your blankets and just eat regular food. And you don't need anything special. And it's a really good way. When we were younger, that was it. That was our whole vacation was camping because we all we needed was a tent. Yes. And we got to the point where we were backpacking with the kids, which over our Christmas uh, gifts were camping gear. Yeah. So we have, of course, a spreadsheet for vacations. Even if I just have a vacation idea and I want to think about it and ponder it, it has the gas and all kinds of things that um, would come up. How many nights will be out? How much will it cost the hotel? What if we're camping? And I can just calculate that all easily and save links to museums and trips and zoos. And then um, I put the expenses for each of those things in there. So that I can, you know, if Michael says, we have $500 for this vacation, I can eliminate all the things that I can't actually afford because I have big ideas. And then next is the who. So who's going? So be clear with all the kids in your family of, about the journey, what the journey entails, so that they can decide. And we do that even with our grown kids who are out of the family. We're making a trip. We're going on an adventure. We invite them to join us. Yeah, we went to California and our 18 and 20-year-old were like, we want to go. And it was a little crowded in the car because we had seven of us or whatever, six of us. And um, But it was so fun to get to spend time with them at 18 and 20 because they'd gotten so busy doing their own thing. Plus, it gave us two extra drivers. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, and so um, and who are you going to see is another one, right? Are you going to go see family? Because family is really important, and they love to see you generally. We were driving through up to Michael's house from Texas to Massachusetts, and we're driving through Pennsylvania, and I was like, oh my gosh, I think if you turn right here, my cousin lives down the road. So we turn right, we turn left, we turn left again, and there's her house. And I thought, we're just going to knock on the door. We knocked on the door, and she just, they lived out in the country, and she just made fresh bread, and we went in, we had bread with homemade jam, and she's like, why don't you just spend the night? And so we just had this great bonding time, and I was always so thankful because... She died not long after that. Yeah. 
Well, and if you're planning on staying with family, though, do have a backup plan because <laughs> sometimes things fall through. And so you'll have no hard feelings if, if you've got a ba- backup plan, a hotel or a campsite nearby where you can go stay. Yeah, that was funny. That happened to my dad one time. He was staying with my brother who had some mental illness problems. And my brother kicked him out and he went and stayed with his, my dad went and stayed with his ex-wife who lived <laughs> close. It's just funny. So be prepared when you're stopping to see family. And then the what? What do you see along the way? Um, 2013 for me was a, a must-see, uh, must-see my dad before he passed away. Uh, the, but there's so much to see between Boston and San Antonio. So the ride was two days nonstop, basically, to get to, to Boston so that I could see my dad. Uh, we were there. He passed away. He was 93 years old. We knew he was passing. Uh, we got to see him, spend a couple of quality days with him. And then after the funeral, I was making a long vacation out of it. Then we decided to take a road trip coming back south. So then is what I do. I have my spreadsheet and I have all these things we can see in it and how much they cost. And we let each of the kids pick their most desired location. And then I map out and have a timetable also worked into my spreadsheet where we're going to see all those things. And then once the stops were decided, I plan the learning opportunities so it's so easy. You download audibles, you save your things to your YouTube list, we put things on a Plex server, and it reduces all the stuff we used to carry in the car. Like I used to carry workbooks and workbooks and maps and all these things I printed and activities, and now it's pretty digital. So, for example, we read the Declaration of Independence and watched National Treasure before getting to D.C. one trip, and then we went to the National Archives this was the second time we'd gone to the National Archives. The first time we went, the building had flooded, so it was closed and we couldn't see them. And it was so impressive to see what you're learning about. Um, kids just love that. And then there's this long stretch between Monticello, Thomas Jefferson's home, and our home. But the Tuskegee Air Museum is there, and we love to stop there. On the way down, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful museum if you live anywhere near there. And so another thing that you need to think about is the where. So once you decided on the end destination, you can set up a calendar for the trip. Uh, Sue does this in our increments. So estimating stops for eating, sightseeing. When we were younger, we'd get the Walmart map because it would tell you where every Walmart was in the United States. So we'd have the book. It was the Rand McNally map, you know, book map of, of the United States with every Walmart location because it was good for us to stop along the way. Yeah, bathrooms and snacks. Yes, and normally we don't do fast food. We're not a fast food family. But on a trip like that, especially with little ones, we would look at McDonald's that had playgrounds. Just so getting out of the car for a while so the kids could spend some time reducing some of their energy, we'd stop for lunch and let them play in the playground. And you can estimate the time you'll spend at stops. A lot of places have that now. The average person spends three hours here or whatever. So the overnight in hotels can be super tricky for large families in certain states because they limit the number of people per rooms and need an adult in the room. So... um that's hard, but Airbnbs covered some of that because you can rent a whole Airbnb or home away and have, you know, a bunch of people in one house. And it's, I think, a little bit safer. The only problem with Airbnb is you need two nights usually at that same location. So if you're kind of cruising through on a trip, it's uh, Airbnb is kind of hard. So anyways, we did a three or four week camping trip one time, myself and three of our kids. And we camped up the East Coast across to Niagara and down back through St. Louis, which was very inexpensive, except for the gas. Yeah. 
And then when. So the time of year you choose will create different variables and expenses. If you're going skiing in Colorado, you're probably not planning for a summer trip. Many yeah. places have seasonal hours and prices. And budgeting and bringing the correct clothing and gear will mean knowing what you're trying to accomplish with the trip beforehand. Yeah, and one of the things to remember, like, if you're going to a cold climate, I have a friend who would go to Colorado one week a year to visit her in-laws, and she would get off the plane and go to Goodwill and buy her kids winter the winter clothes at Goodwill because she's like, we're coming back to Texas, and we're never going to use those again. And then she would just leave them with somebody in the family. So, yeah, so it can be an adventure. So even right now for us, we had an adventure. We went to Houston from San Antonio for the Thanksgiving holiday, and we had to take two vehicles. So we've got a van, but it didn't hold everybody. And, and so, our stuff. And our stuff. So we ended up having to take two vehicles. So we're looking at increasing the size of the vehicle we have so that we can include everybody in one vehicle. There are challenges along the way when you're taking a vacation. It's a change of your, of your lifestyle for a period of time. But you can plan to be prepared for what you're doing. Yeah. So remember, when you're designing the vacation you'd love to take, don't be in a hurry and enjoy the time. This has been Michael and Sue Laprise with HaloBySue.com. Back to you, Jack. You know, I, I, I really like having a great plan for a vacation, but I'm, I'm going to tell you guys a, a secret. To this day, when I look back at the vacations that Dorothy and I, and specifically Matthew, since it's a family vacation thing, took together... There's some really great ones. A lot of them, as you might imagine, those that have listened for a while, involve Florida, because uh, we just love Sanibel, Florida. But probably the best single vacation was only a few days. It was like four days at the most. And we were supposed to go up to northwest Arkansas, and, and it was wintertime. Uh, and it was like the time between Christmas and New Year's. We were going to take a couple days and just go and rent this cabin uh, up near Bull Shoals Lake. And there was a lot of trails to walk on, and an ice storm came in. And the ice storm was so bad that this little bitty subsidized airline called Big Sky Air, the people that were supposed to be at the airport to, like, greet you just didn't show up. Um, apparently, there was only three flights out of Dallas-Fort Worth on their little Fokker 100 planes that day, and all three of them were places that, like, you just couldn't fly to that day. And they were partnered, I believe it was with American Airlines, and I was like an American platinum chairman type person back then because I traveled a lot. And so I went over, like it was like a, it was like a kiosk inside of the American Airlines terminal. It was weird. And I was like, can you help me with this? And they're like, we're, and I tell them, and they're like, let me get on the phone. So they get on the phone and they call Montana, where this company's from, and they basically said, yeah, they're partners, and you can fly uh, round trip for the same dates of travel to anywhere. American flies, and we were kind of hooked on the whole mountains thing, and we also only had so many days, so like Seattle was kind of out because it's so far, you know, it would take so much of the day, and you know, one more flights out, one more flights back, and I was about to give up, and we were about to go home, and I was like, there's mountains in Tennessee, can we go to Nashville, and the lady's like, yeah, no problem, I guess we're going to Nashville, so we went to Nashville, And we kind of drove in a big triangle down to the North Carolina border and then up to, I guess it's Knoxville, and then back down to Nashville over four days. And we just went wherever we found something interesting. And it was a fantastic vacation. It was a bit of a gamble. Like my, Darth, my wife, Dorothy's like, well, what about a rental car? I'm like, there's like eight rental car agencies. We'll get a car. You know, so we get there and we're like, just start. I'm like, you go to that counter. I'll go to this counter. If we get a yes... 
then just wave to the other one and we'll stop. So we did, and we got a Jeep Cherokee, and man, we had a blast. And a little travel trip with with, with kids. So my, Matthew was at the point where you spent a lot of time in the car. He was like nine, ten ish, maybe eleven at the most. I'm thinking more like nine. Um, compl- you know, a lot of complaining. When are we going to be there? Well, since we don't know where we're going, we don't know when. So I made a bet with him. I bet him that he couldn't make it until we made it all the way back to the airplane without complaining one time. And I don't remember what I put up, but it was something I would have gave him anyway. <laughs> and he took the bet. And he actually won the bet. He managed to not complain for like three straight days. And at the end of it, it was amazing because he was like, that was the best three days ever. And he realized in that that like his lack of bitching actually made his life, not just our life, better. It was a, a kind of a turning point. So I do think there also is a place with family vacations for the lack of planning. And I don't think that's a two-week vacation. But I think like the short getaways, it's kind of a cool way to go because you're never in a hurry. You can't be late. I mean, you see what I mean? Like you have no, like we didn't even know what hotels we were staying in. We're just like a drive. There's a hotel. We'll see and get a room here. It seems like a cool place to spend it like that. And, uh, you know, we, the internet was not a big thing yet. It was just starting. We certainly didn't have, uh, cell phones that were good at navigating the internet or anything yet. So we kind of just, you know, would pull into a place, get the little brochures. Ask people, whatever. Today, it's much easier to do stuff like that. So just thought I'd throw that in there. Next up, I have a segment on wood stoves for the winter and winter climates from Ben Falk. Hey, Jack and all. Ben Falk with um, Whole Systems Design and the Expert Council. Um, have a little uh, segment here on wood cook stoves. Um, not a direct question, but Jack um, – just wanted a few segments from people um, that might be helpful. And this is definitely a topic that is not getting enough uh, focus in the homesteading and preparedness community. Um, I think partly because a lot of people live in warmer climates, but plenty of us live in colder places and it's really, really hard to beat. I haven't seen any better system than uh, to meet your heat needs and hot water needs and backup cooking needs at the very least than with a wood cook stove. So people all know wood stoves and many people know wood cook stoves, but most of the wood cook stoves are out there are really leaky kind of antique um, type units. There are a handful or more now of actually like modern, um, relatively airtight wood cook stoves. So They're just wood stoves that have a cook surface and an oven built into them, and you can retrofit them, or they come also, some of them, with a water jacket to heat hot water very easily. You can retrofit, by the way, any wood heater, boiler, um, wood stove, regular wood stove to heat hot water. You just have to create a um, an interface for the water, a water jacket, or a coil going through the firebox or just above it or near it and have a hot water tank above the stove it can be a floor or two floors above the stove and it can be off to the side but many people agree on that it has to be two times the height of versus the horizontal distance so 2x in height uh, compared to the horizontal to get the thermosiphon loop to flow passive convection loop to flow you don't want to rely on a pump so you can't have that tank downstairs most people have a wood stove wood cook stove in the main floor of their house they have their utility floor down below 
you can't really do that, I don't think, in any reasonable way because you will need a pump and then the pump will break or the power is out or both, then you can't run your stove because you'll boil the water. So that's really not viable. That's a real deal breaker. So we've done a few different ways. We've done where the only tank in the building is above the wood stove uh, is is the wood stove hot water and then in the summer you have on-demand um propane that's really hard to beat now that's what's killing the solar hot water industry although i still think solar hot water is awesome but price wise with the cost of propane uh, on-demand propane is just owning everything right now it's so efficient um and then in buildings where there already is an existing hot water tank um Downstairs, we just use that as the summer tank, and that's solar and propane backup. We just kind of leave that, and then we added a new tank that we flip over with a ball valve for the winter months. And it's really only the swing seasons that are a challenge, you know, fall and spring when it's like maybe not quite sunny enough to get the solar, but you're really not running the wood stove enough to make enough hot water. Once we get into deep winter for months here in Vermont, we just run the stove, and we have an amazing amount of hot water. And we have a few different versions that we've done of this, well, a handful. And one of the ones I like the best is just a Waterford Stanley cook stove with a one-gallon or so stainless water jacket in the back. And we're running, we have a 50-gallon tank upstairs above it that's most of the time between 120 degrees at the, on the cold end and 150 on the warm end. And we're burning the stove, you know, most of the time, it's a small firebox, so that'll basically eat up about two, two and a half quarts of wood in a winter, which isn't much. Um, we have all our heat, all our hot water, almost all our heat. You know, if we're out and we're not tending the stove, the propane will kick on, um, and on, on two, two and a half quarts plus cooking, baking, and a lot of people bring up the the concept of mass based heaters, masonry ovens, rocket mass that they're more efficient, why don't you use those? And yes, they are more efficient. You'll get more BTUs per pound of wood, of fuel burned, but they're they're less effective, I think, because they can't do everything that this system can do. So it's a great example of efficiency isn't, isn't necessarily effectiveness or resiliency, and um, efficiency isn't necessarily, often isn't the highest goal, um, I would love if this wood cook stove setup was as efficient or better than a, a mass base heater for sure, but it's technically very difficult to do because that efficiency is based on super high burn temperatures that will burn out metal, and you need that's why you need it to be masonry based to do it, um, and also the the patterns of use in in uh, a mass base heater are to to burn once or twice a day, super hot fire get all that all those volatile gases out of the fuel and then the burn's done and you store it in mass that's awesome but you're not going to cook a bone broth or, or have a cook surface you know on all the time which we do which is really handy for our and many other people's lifestyles to have just a hot cook surface going all the time teas soups you name it and have an oven as well and heat hot water that hot water is best heated when you have like many hours six eight ten 20 hours of heating a day where you can just really ramp up the temperature in the tank. Trying to dump tons of heat really quickly into water doesn't work as well for a variety of reasons. One, you just don't, you don't get as much heat. And two, you get a lot uh, more dirty materials, soot 
creosote formation at that interface because the delta T is so high. You want a low change in temp over long periods of time for water heating, for exchange versus a super high delta T for very short periods of time. So you want to have the pattern of use that a wood stove has, not a mass-based heater. Um, I'd love to hear of it if anyone knows of a mass-based heater that's really able to cook all the time, bake, and he even just heat hot water effectively. I'd love to hear about it because I've, I've seen people try and I haven't seen them really succeed with it because of that just inherent pattern of use problem. But you know, I'd love to hear about it. Um, the Holy Grail is to have a, a super high efficiency mass based heater that still does these other functions. I think it's it seems impossible just from a pattern of use standpoint. Never mind some other technical standpoints like things burning out. Um, so. Big fan of this. Check if you're interested in this more. There's some resources online. Um, my book has a, a drawing that's relatively current of this system, although we've kind of updated it in new generation systems since the book's out, been out for five, six years now. Uh, I'm not aware of a lot of other great resources online for it. You can find different versions of people doing this. One thing to mention, you got to do it safely. You need pressure relief valves. We put two in, just regular boil, boiler pressure relief valves. Because um, you don't want to create a pipe bomb by mistake. You you can boil water with this for sure, and that pressure has to get out. Or you're going to have copper pipe shrapnel you know, flying through your living space or other types of shrapnel. So um, it's easy to make it safe, but you, you do need to have a pressure relief valve, one or two in the right places in the system. So... Yeah, we we should have more of these in our world, and it's amazing to me how many people have like, you know, a lot of different resiliency systems going in their homestead and, and preparations, and they're still just relying on offsite resources and 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 fragile systems that depend on electricity for heating, not only their space. That's really bad, but they're hot water too. I mean, hot water is a great. It's not as important as heating the space, but it's it's up there. Having hot water is really important. So I wanted to just rant about that topic a little bit for you. Thanks a lot, and uh, hope you're all well. All right, and uh, next up I have a question here for Tim Glantz on uh, improving radio communications on your own property, on a fairly large piece of property, where the little bubble wrap clamshell-type radios that claim to have super long ranges and don't just aren't making it happen anymore. Tim, take it away. Hey everybody, Tim Glantz here from Old Grouch's Military Surplus with an expert panel answer for uh, Jeremy about GMRS radios and range. And he's uh, looking to upgrade the two-way radios they use out at their property. Um, they're using what we, a lot of us call little bubble pack radios like you get at Walmart. Uh, of course, you all know they're limited at range. They'll, they'll tell you they got 800-mile range and they've got about 800 feet in a lot of cases. It says the area they want to cover is about 4,000 acres of hills, canyons, and valleys. Uh, and the main valley is four miles long with a dog leg in the middle and ridges out to about 400 feet above the valley floor. Um, his wife uh, says she'd like a base station at their trailer, and he, he wants to upgrade to handheld radio. So looking at a uh, whole system, maybe even a mobile radio for the truck, he thinks it will cover most of it. Uh, but the uh, brother suggested that a repeater as well. And uh, think, he thinks a repeater would cover the area they need if they put it in an ideal spot. Uh, he wants to know where to start, uh, what to get, uh, power supply, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and he'd like to stay with the uh, GMRS if possible. And uh, I agree with that, Jeremy, because GMRS is easy to do. And, of course, if you've got a license, one license covers your entire household. So you're good there. Um, and a repeater, uh, it sounds like a repeater would work for you. 
I would say before you uh, do a repeater, get uh, a base station with a good high antenna, uh, mount it where you're going to do it, and go out and do some testing with your handheld. And if, if you can reach where you need to reach uh, between the handheld and the uh, base station, uh, then you're good to go. And, of course, GMRS rules allow you to use up to 50 watts with your uh, radio. So I would look at getting a uh, 40 to 50 watt UHF commercial radio, something like a Motorola uh, Max Track or CDM or one of those, uh, and a good antenna, a uh, good high gain antenna, and put it up as high as possible. So some portable mass to put it up there and test it. That, you may find that works just fine. Uh, and the big factor is really going to be the antenna system. So get a good antenna, a uh, high gain antenna. Get as high as possible and use high quality coax to feed it. I can't stress that enough because that's going to really help that base station receive that weaker signal from that handheld. Uh, if that doesn't do it, then yes, you can do a repeater. And in your situation, since you're only going to need it five or six days at a time, I would make a portable setup. And the ideal use there would be a repeater uh, that's made from two mobile radios running about 10 to 20 watts uh, with a duplexer. And, of course, they're going to be 12 volts anyway, so you can power them with a battery bank and or solar and uh, be good to go. Now, you're going to look, uh, you can look on eBay, put GMRS repeater, you'll see all kinds of things. You're going to see some that are made from handheld radios uh, and some made from cheap Baofeng radios. Do not buy those, okay? Your handhelds are not suited for this kind of use. Uh, they're not made to transmit on the duty cycle that a repeater needs. They will overheat. Uh, especially your Baofengs, they do not have the, the receive selectivity to be used in a repeater situation because you're going to have two radios that are transmitting and receiving at the same time, close together, hooked together with, uh, with a duplexer. And so what's going to happen is uh, because they don't have the selectivity, no matter how well you tune that duplexer, you're going to uh, basically lose sensitivity in the receive radio. Look for somebody that's selling a pre-made unit that has two mobile radios or one older mobile radio that's been modified for uh, duplex operation and has a duplexer. This is important. Don't go with the two antenna setup. Get a duplexer and make sure they state the duplexer is properly tuned uh, because you don't want to be trying to tune a duplexer yourself. You're going to need, you know, $1,000 worth of equipment minimum to do that for a one-time job. So after you picked all that up, uh, get a good antenna. Once again, get it as high as possible and uh, get your battery bank and or solar panels to power it. And, yeah, you can have a portable GMRS repeater. Um, repeaters can be a very complicated subject. It's easy to cobble something together. It's more difficult to do it right. That's why I suggest buying one from somebody that's already tuned the duplexer and set everything up and kind of has it plug and play for you. Uh, if you've got any other questions, feel free to email me, Tim at oldgrouch.com, because uh, repeaters can be a very complex subject. But I would get on eBay Look around for pre-made GMRS repeaters. Uh, find ones that are ready to go, like I said, plug-and-play with a duplexer that's tuned that are made from mobile radios, so they're already 12 volts. And uh, if you f end up needing a repeater, that would be your, your ideal setup there. But I think if you get out there and test, and uh, depending, you know, I don't know where your camper is located, where the space station is going to be, but I think if you get out there and you buy the base station for the camper with a good antenna system, and you uh, get out there and do some testing, I think you're going to find that uh, you may not even need the repeater. So definitely do the testing before investing in it. 
hope that helps and hope that uh, gives you a good idea of what you uh, need to do to get started. And uh, I would suggest do a lot of reading on repeaters, uh, duplexers, how repeaters are set up and all that stuff so you kind of understand uh, what can be a really complex subject to do right uh, so you know what you're looking at when you go to buy and maybe find a local ham around you that uh, has had some repeaters before that would be willing to uh, give you some advice. Most of them are more than willing to talk your ears off about everything about it uh, once you ask them. So uh, thanks for the great question. As always, Jack, thanks for the great podcast, and thanks for having me as part of it. Okay, I didn't I didn't hear anything in this at all about cell phones. Um, in most instances, when someone's trying to do something like this, it's because the property that they're doing it on, cell phones don't work. There is another reason people do this, though. It's not that cell phones don't work. It's that they want everybody to hear what's going on at the same time. Uh, they want to be able to reach out and say, is anybody near this area? Let's say we're running a hunting operation uh, or even a ranch. Like This is what that sounds like. But let's say it's a hunting operation. To kind of make my point here, for alternate solutions, I would give it might work for a lot of people. So let's say I've got... Uh, a hunter that's out at, at, at a given blind, and uh, I, I, I need someone to go check on them. And I just need to know before I, I don't want to call Tom and say, Tom, go check on these guys. If it's a big, you know, 4,000 acre place or something like that, and he's clear on the other side of, of Timbuktu from it, and let's say I've named that, that, that blind Alpha One. So I might be like, is, is, you know, I want to be able to get on there with all my hands and say, hey, is anybody near Alpha One right now? Instead of individually calling people and having, well, Tom says that, that you're over, Billy's like, no, I'm not, I'm nowhere near, that. I just want to be able to, hey, is anybody out there? All hands, boom. And I want somebody to be able to go, yeah, I'm out there. And I, and I want my hunters to be able to, to get on a net and say, hey, I've got a deer down and, and I'm ready to come in. Or, hey, I've got a problem. And instead of having it be that there's this one central person who always has to be up and on guard, I want the whole staff to hear it so they can all talk. You see what I'm saying? I want a radio net. Well, if you have cell phone coverage, guess what does that? Zello. Zello, in a lot of instances like this, if you have good cell coverage, may be the best app. And the uh, ranch that I hunt down in South Texas, one of them anyway, that's what they're doing now. Because they've got cell coverage everywhere. And there's one gal named Ashley, and she was kind of like the point person on all this. And then you'd get there, and you got your guide, and you need your guide's cell phone number. And maybe they do just get outside the shadow of the coverage, and you can't reach your guide. And now you're calling Ashley, and Ashley went into town. And they went, and they set up a Zello channel for their ranch. Um, where they can, they use moderator privileges and also they can approve you and when you leave they take you off and it works beautifully it works beautifully you get out and you can you can hit people up you put your phone on quiet but you set it somewhere where if messages are coming through you can see it if you're on a blind uh, that way it doesn't disrupt or disturb you or anything like that if they need you individually They call you individually, so you know you're getting a phone call. Uh, but again, you don't disturb game or anything like that. And they only would call you if some kind of emergency was going on, uh, or text you or something like that. But by using that radio net, any hunter that reaches out is reaching out to all the staff, and all the staff can interact with what needs to be done, and the staff can interact with each other. And I think they even have a secondary channel that's just for staff that the hunters aren't on. 
So I'm just suggesting that maybe in some of these instances, there are reasons to want radio nets beyond not having coverage. And if you have something that will already do the job, at least consider it as a possibility. Next up, I have a, a question for Nicole Sauce on finding and monetizing your passion. Hey, TSP, Nicole Sauce here with a question from Brian. Brian asks, what are the keys to discovering your passion? And part two, with an eye towards monetization. I've tried multiple things, and I just... I'm afraid of being typecast in a niche. I, for example, started a hiking website and after four or five years just got sick of it. And the website's still up there, but I just cannot bring myself to write more about hiking because I get bored. So, Brian, just get started. Okay, that was a little joke between Brian and me. I followed up and he said he knows what I'm going to say is just get started, <clears throat> which is true. And he, he's been kicking around the idea of starting something and just doesn't know what to do. And I have to say, in talking back and forth, my favorite idea that he's had is starting a podcast called Shit I Talk to Myself About. Because it leaves some openings for him to explore while potentially having an interesting, fun twist. So I would say this. If, if you have not found your passion yet, but you're aware enough to notice that you'd like to, You just, you just gotta get started. And you need to commit to taking responsibility for finding it and be aware enough to notice when you have. So the first thing I would say is try multiple things and learn from them. This could be anything from if it's content creation, writing, shooting videos about things, podcasting, live presentation, or maybe you want to start trying to produce products, playing with crafts, offering services. Just go out and try a bunch of things. Like, for example, you've, you've tried a website. You've tried doing a website on hiking, and it's not a good fit. Well, the next question I'm going to ask is why is it not a good fit? Is it the writing part of it? Is there a lack of community? Are you just sick of hiking? Is it something else? Could it be rejigged into something way cooler that you love? Anytime you try something and then get really bored with it, it's important to identify why. And it may be that you just do not like producing brownie mixes and selling them, right? And if that's the case, that's the case. Or is it that you don't like the selling it part? Or is it that you don't like the production part? It's really important to know why, because no matter what your passion is, if the production part of that you hate is there, then it's never going to quite be a good fit. An example from my past is I used to have a cooking blog called NicoleSauce.com, and there's some random stuff still up there, but it turns out I do not like to write every single day, even though I'm good at it. I'm a pretty good writer. And so my content became formulaic and forced and inconsistent, and I was trying to do pictures and blah, blah, blah. I just, I did it for a little while. I started developing blogger friends who were cooking blogger friends. Occasionally one of them pops up to this day. And I think by 2007, I'd stopped posting to that blog. I think I started it in 2005 or something or six. Anyway. I just got bored with it, and it wasn't that I love cooking. I love showing people how to cook. I love making up recipes. I love trying new things. Like, all of those parts of the cooking blog was awesome. What I didn't like was sitting down in front of the computer and writing every day. 
And it took me years to figure that out. I tried like four other writing projects between realizing that and now, and I wish I would have realized sooner that writing was the problem. So asking yourself why is really important. So I give you a to do. Go out and ask people all the things they've tried who are pursuing their passion and listen to their answers. Because what you're going to find out is they've done all sorts of things you have no idea about. Like I used to be a truck broker. I bet you don't know that. I was a truck broker and that taught me a lot about communication and sales. So it was a very good skill to, ber- to, to learn, but I'm also not a truck broker to this day. I've also worked in a peanut factory, so I know a lot about nuts just for what that's worth. Anybody you ask who has been pursuing their passion or found it is going to have a similar random weird list of stuff they've done. And I find it really fun to hear that. I find it inspiring because, you know, when I have an opportunity to try something new, if I decide to do it or not, I might be like, you know what? Yeah, I really would like to work in a moonshine factory for a while and learn how that's done and see, you know, the whole process. So that's my to-do for you. Also, keep trying things and figure out which ones you like. It may not be obvious. Always go deeper and look for the characteristics that are like sticking in your eye. For me, I hate bookkeeping. That's one of my things. Hate it. And I still do it because it's important to have an overview of the finance in the business. But I know in my heart, I will never be a bookkeeper for somebody else. Never again anyway. And I do love helping people and I love speaking and I like podcasting and presentation because of that. The verbal communication for me is a much better fit than written ever was. And I love processing food more than I love growing it, even though I get my Zen time in the garden. So canning, cheese making, coffee, the former helps the latter, right? Like the podcasting and presentation helps the product I've turned out to love producing, which is coffee, but I've tried all sorts of different things between here and there. Okay. Number two, don't do stuff you hate. I have a friend who wrote a book with that title. Don't do stuff you hate. He has made a life for himself, not doing things he hates. He does things he loves. He figures out how to outsource the things he hates and he's living a great life, right? So Even if you have built something and have awesome clients, you still shouldn't do things you hate. If you look at Jack's recent adventure with the duck eggs, like they built a pretty decent business in duck egg sales and production, and they liked it. And they no longer loved it when some things in their lives changed, right? When the grandkids like started coming over, the grandkids were a little bit more fun than the duck eggs. And so they stopped it. And they did the following. They took care of their existing customers when they did it. Because it's also important if you're doing a transition like that and you have customers to think about how can I make sure that this is handed off in a way that doesn't leave that person out in the cold or at least give them enough notice that they can find alternative sources, right? Because the other part of not doing stuff you hate is don't screw other people over in the process because as you do that, your reputation gets just really hammered. So I've always admired how Jack and Dorothy managed to transition the duck eggs. And it's a pretty good example of not doing something that they were going to eventually hate because it was taking time from other things more important to them. Okay. Number three, this one's the hard one. You will know when you know. So give yourself some time to know and set your terms, right? 
Colonel Sanders, KFC, we all know the story, or maybe we don't. He was like in his 60s when he figured out. He's about to commit suicide, by the way, because he had been a failure his whole life. And he thought about as he was about to commit suicide, this is how the story goes. He thought, you know, what I'm really good at is mixing flavors. And instead of killing himself, he developed the, the recipe for KFC and became a billionaire before he died. There's a lot of other pieces along the way, but think about that. He was in his 60s, but he kept trying. And when he was ready to give up trying, he was like, wait, I have a thought. And there was something in him that made him try it, and it worked really well. So you will know when you know, and that's that's the hard part. The other part of giving your time yourself time to know is taking time to think along the way. And this is hard to do when you're building a business because there are so many daily tasks. Like I should be roasting coffee right now, but I'm talking to y'all. And so even when you found it, ask yourself, why is this working? What do I love about it? Recently, a friend asked me about my coffee business. If I was roasting coffee 40 hours a day, which would make me quite a, a decent living, would that be perfect for you? And I was like, I don't know. Because I'm not roasting coffee 40 hours a day. I'm working on it hard and I pair it with another thing, but I don't know. And then as I thought about it, I was like, no, 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 no. I want to roast coffee half the day and I want to do something else the other half of the day. And so as I looked, I'm so glad he asked that question because I went back and, and then I had my perfect days this week, right? So I had orders come in and I organized my day to just get up and get them done by noon every day. And then I had the rest of the day. And formerly, I'd been kind of like not super efficient with the coffee roasting and doing things in between. Nope. I just banged it out. And I thought, you know what? What I do love about this 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 morning of coffee roasting is it's a great time for me to think about other things while I'm getting it done. I can pay attention to the quality of the product. I get a lot of orders out quickly. And so this volume is what I want to do. And if I have way more volume, I've either got to change how I approach this business model by bringing people in to help, or I have to say, this is how much coffee goes out every day. So that's why, like, even when you found my passion, I love roasting coffee. I love providing a premium product for people who appreciate it. I love hearing back from them when they appreciate it. It's like, it's part of me now, right? But I don't want to do it full time. And like knowing that means there's a limit and I'm going to set my limit. I'm never going to be, well, I can't say, I should never say never. So I won't go on with that one. Anyway. Okay. Number four. So three was you will know when you know. Number four is work for it. Yeah, you got to work for it. You will have to work for it. And sometimes that will mean pushing through the hard part. And that is why analyzing why you don't like something is so important along the way, because it may just be that you got to push through the, I got to do all my own bookkeeping. Like I, I'm about to the point where I'm going to, I'm going to be able to outsource to a, a bookkeeper again and just evaluate the reports they create for me, which is a lovely time in my life. I love being there, but I knew I needed to push through something I don't particularly love doing to get the volume to where it's going to be and not be expen you know, expending resources on something that was unnecessary just because I hate it at that, at this time in our cash flow. So you're going to have to work for it. And part of working for it is to get started 
It's just to get started and start learning what your passion is. Push outside your comfort zone. Maybe you're not a public speaker. Try it. Maybe you need to learn how to let go of bad art you draw draw yourself and pay a designer more money than you ever thought you'd pay a designer for the right logo. Maybe you need to learn about target, target customers and you don't like people. That's always a fun one. Maybe you just need to learn to edit video. I've got a friend right now building something where he's having to learn to edit video and it's hard and it's frustrating. And I hear him going, but then every time he gets the video, he's like, Hey, I got a video out. Right? So push outside your comfort zone along the way so that you can be good at what you need to be good at when the time comes. In fact, this reminds me of something. I was talking to somebody on the phone yesterday who is launching a new website and he does not have a logo yet. And he was like, okay, so I just got to go get my logo. Well, his brand is defined, but not as defined as it will be in about a year after he's been doing this. And so I said to him, well, consider this, consider having a very simple text-based logo while you build as a content business, while you build your content creation business and then see what your target audience shows you to be the essence of your logo. I know like for my podcast, I didn't have a logo for two years. Technically I had a logo, but now my cowboy hat is basically the logo. And I would not have known that two years ago. Sometimes it's okay to take time with that. Like if you're launching a software package called Microsoft Office to the whole world, of course you need to have your branding and your logo all in place, but sometimes it's okay to wait and listen. So shit I talk to myself about, Brian, why not? If the cuss word cuts out your target audience, which it might, you could change it to stuff or something else, or you can find another title. I actually really like that title, but some people may be turned off by the the first word, whatever. I don't know if those are your people or not your people. It kind of depends. Like shit I talk to myself about could be really funny, or you may hate it, or You may go down that adventure and it may open up doors you never knew were there. So also go back. You know who's really good at talking about how to find your passion, by the way? Mr. Jack Spierko of the Survival Podcast. Yeah. Go back and listen to episode 1952. I sent him the link to his own episode because he has so many. So, Jack, if you want to throw that in the show notes, I'm sure that would help other people remember, especially at this time of year going into the the wind down uh, of Christmas and in between Christmas and the new year. Go back and listen to that episode, 1952. Jack did an awesome job of covering it. And I think the exercises he walks you through in that episode are helpful. And they're helpful for people who've already found their passion. Like I go back and listen to it from time to time to just do some, you know, like while I'm working on something. Oh yeah. Okay. I hadn't thought about that in a while. So thanks for my, so much for the question, Brian. And TSB, we still have 30 pounds of Jack's bourbon cooled beans. So if you are interested in grabbing that coffee of the month or another varietal we have over at hollerroastcoffee.com, do that soon. A few of you have asked me to delay the roasting until a little closer to Christmas on the gift coffees, like the bourbon cooled that you're doing as gifts. That's fine. Just let me know that in the notes and I'll hang on to the orders until a time that's a little closer to Christmas so you can give the gift of really fresh coffee, which I love. Anyway, I hope you all do find your passion along the way and that you're able to build it into your lives and livelihoods. On the other hand, 
if you're still making a good life and haven't found the ideal job and you have a non-ideal job you don't hate, that's actually kind of awesome. So, you know, decide where you're going to go and go for it. Make it a great week. So, guys, I wanted to take a little bit of an alternative view on this. Now, now you guys know this is... This is an alternative view. It's not a statement that should be followed as, as the ultimate. Like, this is just another way to look at this, and, and it applies in some situations and not all. Uh, because I am huge on finding and following your passion, and if you can make that your business, then, then, then so much the better. We all have to do something for a living. We all have to, you know, to work for a living, uh, so to say. We have, have to do something. And I think that even those of us that maybe reach a point where we're, uh, fairly financially successful to the point we don't need to work tend to want to. Um, so if I can spend my days doing something I enjoy to earn my daily bread, Uh, that's probably better than spending my days doing something I don't enjoy to earn my daily bread. Um, and, you know, we all kind of have, you know, the fantasy of being the surfer who becomes the surf instructor or something like that. And, and, and I certainly understand that. But I'm going to do something I, I don't often do here. I'm going to refer to a movie that I hate. I, I generally don't refer to movies that I hate because I don't know enough about them to, to refer to them. Because uh, I don't watch him. But way back in the day, long before I even knew who Dorothy was, I had a girlfriend named Vicky. And Vicky liked chick flicks. And I was a young man, and, you know, when your girlfriend wants to watch a flipping chick flick, you bite your tongue and watch it. And she wanted to watch this movie that I still think is one of the most god-awful movies I actually sat through in my life called Hope Floats. And later she told me, but it's true, hope does float. And I told her, so does shit. That tells you how much I don't like this movie. But in this movie, there was about 30 seconds, and I tried to find it on YouTube, and I gave up watching clips of this thing because it made me want to take a freaking ice pick to my ear and, and, and lobotomize myself to not endure any seconds of it again other than this 30-second point. And I'll probably misquote it because I don't remember it exactly, but... You know, this guy's pursuing this girl, and and, 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 and and she ends up like, she doesn't really think he's that much of him. You know, he, he I don't remember what he does. He does some loser job or something. And she goes to his house, and his house looks pretty modest. And she walks inside his house, and his house on the inside is, is gorgeous. Like the cabinetry alone, there's like a couple hundred thousand dollars probably in custom cabinetry throughout the house. I guess today's money, maybe not when that terrible movie was made. But it's, you know, like you just look at it and go, okay, this guy can't afford this. And everything, all the woodwork in the house is just breathtaking. And, and she asked him about it and he said, well, I made it all. And she said, you did this? And he said, yeah. And she's like, well, why, if you can do this... Why don't you why don't you do this for a living? And he says, "Oh, that would just be great. Take something you love and turn it into a commodity so that you end up hating it." And for that brief couple seconds, my ears opened and my mind opened and I looked at this movie and thought, "Oh, maybe there's something in there." Back to shit floats. But In spite of how bad it was, and maybe because of how bad it was, that always stuck with me. And I've always had mixed emotions on that statement. And I think the way to look at that is, Will taking this thing you love and turning it into something you do for a living 
make you not love it anymore. It doesn't mean that everything you love will be like that. But maybe there's some things you love, and what you love about them necessitates that they not be commoditized. So let's take the hiking, for example. Maybe the reason you love hiking is because it's your way to get away from everybody. Maybe you like the quiet, the solitude, the long walk, the shutting off your mind. You're not really thinking about the fact that you're hiking. You're thinking about, oh, look at the bird, look at the tree. Or you're thinking about all the complex things in your life, and you're letting nature allow the reboot so that when you come back out of it, it's kind of like going to sleep and coming out of a dream And now I have a solution, or now at least I'm okay with going forward. Now, if I take that and everything that I do when I hike has to be about, I need this piece of gear from this company. So, And, and, and I found that a little bit anyway with cooking. You know, I want to do more, and, and part of the why we didn't stop with Bill Tom for breakfast is David just got busy. He's on the road all the time, and, and I can't do all the editing and everything. But I've thought about kind of picking that back up. But if I'm going to do cooking videos, then I have to find a way to do them. It doesn't take away my joy of cooking. See, the reason I can do this show every day and follow my passion is because this show lets me talk about whatever the hell I want to talk about on any given day. And I've also found ways to offload some of the work, like having the greatest audience in the world that does my research for me, like having an amazing expert counsel that comes back and answers questions. So this was able to take my greatest passion, teaching, and tie it into all the other things that I really love without grabbing onto one of those to the point of destroying it. Because I was talking to Dorothy about, uh, in a roundabout way, this same subject today. I was telling her, I said, you know, one of the reasons we only have like 40,000 YouTube subscribers instead of like 400,000 YouTube subscribers is I don't have a thing on YouTube. You know, I'm not Rob Bob that's all aquaponics all the time. I'm not Scott Ray that's all cooking all the time. You know, I, 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 I'm not king of DIY that's all fish tanks all the time. So those people build followings on YouTube because somebody's like, I'm a fish tank guy. And, I, and, and maybe they subscribe to a dozen other things, but they know they're going to get fish tanks from this dude. Or they know they're going to get, you know, guns from, I guess, Nut and Fancy or uh, Hickok 45 or whatever it is, right? And they know this guy does this thing, and that works really well on YouTube. So I think that like YouTube works really well for somebody that wants to latch on to that hiking, like Jessica Mills. Jessica Mills is a person who took hiking, and she's been able to make a content generation business out of hiking without ruining it for herself. And by the way, her probably her best success has been YouTube. And it's because I'm just going to stop and do this one video, and she doesn't try to make it a super professional production. She doesn't put hours of editing into it. And I think that's another thing when it comes to monetizing your passion online. If you are a detail-oriented person that likes to be perfect and you want, like Wrangler Star would be an example of this. Uh, Wrangler Star's YouTube videos are done to a production level of something that you would see on cable television. Now, I don't think he would get a cable television show unaltered from the way he's doing it. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the, the setup of the shot, the lighting, the framing, The editing, the color, the clarity, all that shit is track, right? Okay, if you're a person that loves doing that, and you love doing whatever you're doing that with, you can do that. If you don't like that part of it, then you need to do it rough cut like I do with my iPhone. When I do a walk around my property or the ducks or something, boom, the phone shakes, 
I don't give a shit. You don't like it, watch somebody else's. Because there's enough people out there that like the way you do it to make it work. I think the problem comes in when you can't do that, but you hate making it the way you want it. So maybe you could make, let's say if I wanted to make hiking my business, and blogging about hiking was mundane for me, what other way can I make hiking my business? Am I going to train people in hiking? Am I going to build a business based on outfitting hikers? Am I going to build a business based on informing hikers? You know, maybe I build a business that what I do is I have four or five really amazing day hikes around my area. And what I do is I find places where these hiking routes are that there are things that no one would know about or ever see. Maybe there's an old homestead just a little bit off the trail. And there was a family that lived there, and I learned everything about them. And when I take this, this guy and his two kids and his wife hiking, not only can I say, well, that's a shag bark kickery, and here's how we use that. Right down here from this shag bark, let me take you down here. No one ever sees this. There was a family that lived down here. Here was their names. They lived here for this long. Uh, you know, one of them grew up to be the mayor of a town, blah, 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 whatever it is. And, you know, we found things down here like old bottles and stuff. And maybe even you keep some of that stuff where you can show it to them and nobody else is going to find it, like in your car and say, like, these things here, you know, were found in, at this location. And these people lived here during this time. And it's why they chose to live here. Or there's this historic marker or whatever it is. Or whatever it is. Or, you know what? In the spring, this is really an amazing view. But right now, the real place to go is this stream. And if we are quiet and we go up on this pool, you can see spawning brook trout. And their colors on the males are just amazing. See something like that. Right? So then we're working with people. We're taking, I'm getting to hike while I'm doing that. If your passion is boats, well, the natural thing, I'll do a blog on boating. Not everything has to be about a blog, right? Well, maybe then you set up a, a, you know, a day trip boat out fitting type company uh, I've seen people that they love boats and they love fishing but when they thought about becoming a fishing guy they're like hell no because then it's pressure to do what I love and produce every day so instead what they've done is they've set up like charters so they take people out on their boat as a charter to like an like one guy we call his name reason we call him Captain Jack is his actual name in the brochures he advertises in Florida we go out with them all the time He takes us to this island. We snorkel. We look for shells. We have lunch. We chase dolphins. He doesn't guide fishing trips. Loves to fish. Runs his trips. He lives right on the water. Pays for his boat. Pays for his life. Makes a nice profit. On the way back, he hits the inlets and he fishes on his way home. Right? So I think it's either maybe not every passion needs to be a business Or maybe we need to be mindful about how we transform that passion into a business. Because you can make anything into a business, but it may be, maybe you shouldn't. Or maybe you need to be really careful with how you do so. Maybe it needs to be associated with what you do. Captain Jack taking people on vacation trips where... There's always some dolphins in the sound. That beach is always there. The only thing that can ruin it for you is weather. When that happens, you just reschedule, and sometimes you can't help everybody, but basically you drive the boat from here to there, and you put people on the beach, and you hand them a bunch of crap, and you sit on your boat, and you think about your life. And you, you look at the tide charts and figure out where you're going to go fishing on the way home that night. 
right? And then the, he's, he's tied in his love of boats and the ocean and fishing without the pressure of being a guide. And then I know other people that love being fishing guides. They don't want to do anything else for the rest of their life. See, both have the same passion, but both had different ways of approaching it. And I think that's something that you have to consider in all of this. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up today. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you want to support us, one of the ways you can do that is do your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. And remember, this is the time of year that people are doing a lot of online shopping. And if you go to tspaz.com first, when you do that online shopping, you'll help us no matter what you eventually buy. So it's painless, and you help support the show. I also have items I review every day for you, and I have one for you today. Great stocking stuffer for preppers and just anybody, really. Little device goes on your keychain. It's the Gerber Dime Multi-Tool. It looks like a miniature Leatherman, right? Which is kind of what it is. It has needle nose pliers, wire cutters, a blade, retail package opener, which is kind of cool. It's basically a knife with a little hook on it so you can cut like clamshells open and stuff like that without cutting into the stuff inside them. Scissors, a flat screwdriver, crosshead screwdriver, a bottle opener, tweezers, and a little file. And it's a great little tool. I've recommended it many times. I've sold hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them through tspaz.com uh, over about three years. I've carried one recently for almost two and a half years on my keychain to where paint's wearing off of it and all, and I've always loved it. There's a picture of my keychain with my EDC on it in my keychain EDC anyway, uh, in the review today. I'm holding it, and you can see the little multi-tool right next to my Forerunner key, and the multi-tool folded up is pretty much takes up less space than the Forerunner key. So it's, it's a great little tool. But when you use its stuff long enough, you will find not only how great it is, but also you will find its weaknesses. And one of the things I've always tried to do with integrity in recommending things, not only do I recommend only what I use myself and would spend my money on, but if I find a problem with it, I try to tell you about it. Uh, I don't know this is a problem, but I did kill one. Now, I'm going to tell you that I immediately like went, okay, that was dumb. You exceeded what it's capable of, and I went and ordered another one. Right? So it's, 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 you know, it's not like I, I don't want to recommend this thing anymore. I just found its limits. And here's what happened. Um, you know, net neutrality passed, so of course, according to all the people freaking out that want the government to take over the Internet, uh, the uh, online Internet providers were going to go destroy our lives and charge us by the penny and block websites and all. No, what Spectrum did was decide that um, they wanted to double the speed of starting Internet speeds for everybody that was even already a customer. So they sent me a letter that said, if you'd like, we'll send you a brand new uh, router and it will double your speed from 100 to 200 megabits. And you can have it for free if you want it. Yeah, I want it. So I filled the thing out and sent it back in, and then they sent it to me, and I got down on the floor under my desk to install my new router where the old router was. And um, I went to take the little CATV uh, you know, RG6 connector off the back of the router, the cable, little screwy thing for those that don't know the terminology, and I could not turn it with my hand. Uh, I know, and I reached in my pocket, and I pulled my keys out, and I grabbed my little multi-tool, and I opened the pliers, and I grabbed onto it, and I tried to turn it. And if you've ever tried to turn something with pliers, it's too tight to turn with pliers, they just pliers just slide around it, and they don't hold. 
Ah, okay, I squeezed a little harder, and I tried, and it still wouldn't. I'm like, what did the guy that put this? And I actually started worrying that the fitting on the router itself was going to turn out before the cable did. But, hell, I don't need that old router anymore. I don't care. Um, but I was like, okay, well, you should probably get up and get a crescent wrench or a full-size pair of pliers or something like that. But, you know, I'm down there on my side. Uh, I don't want to get them going. So I, I took those little pliers and I grabbed onto that thing and I squeezed with all my man squeeze power. And uh, I felt the handles just kind of go together. And one of the springs that, that, that holds against the backside of the pliers popped up out of there. And everything else still works, but the pliers are shot. They won't work anymore. Uh, so for all intents and purposes, I ruined it. Now, um, I... I'm talking like bone-crushing squeeze, trying to make this thing do what it wasn't supposed to be able to do uh, to, just, to to break it. But you can break one. I just wanted to go on record with that. But I still think this is a great tool. It's $19, uh, free shipping on Prime. It's a great stocking stuffer. I don't know anybody that's ever got one of these like, gee, I don't want this. Uh, so check it out. The Gerber Dime Multi-Tool available at tspaz.com. Or the, go to the survivalpodcast.com and scroll down and you'll find it there. Also, of course, you can help support this show by joining the MSB, but that's all I'll say about that today. If you want to be a member, please do. It's how we pay the bills around here, and it pays for itself. That brings us to our song of the day. This is one of my all-time favorite songs. Um, and I learned something about it today that I can't believe I never knew. Um, when I give you the name of this song, you'll either go, I know that song, or you'll go, no, I don't. And when I when I tell you um, some of the lines from the song, you'll go, oh, that song. And because the odd thing is, I guess a little bit odd, is this is one of the few songs that I know of that the title of the song is never in the words of the song. The song is called For What It's Worth, and it was released in 1966 by Buffalo Springfield. Now, of course, we're in one-hit wonder week, and this was the one-hit wonder of Buffalo Springfield. Buffalo Springfield is one of those people that they get labeled with a one-hit wonder, but people who don't know who they are um, really don't understand how short-sighted that is. Buffalo Springfield uh, was kind of a backward supergroup uh, in some ways. Supergroups, you know, of course, you take these three or four guys that are incredible talents, and then you put them together and make a group out of them after they're famous. It kind of went the other way around. Uh, Steven Stills, Neil Young, uh, Jim Messina, uh, you know, these are guys that were part of Buffalo Springfield, uh, along other people. You know, uh, uh, Steven Stills and Neil Young, of course, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Um, yeah, Jim Fielder. Uh, I'm sorry, Jim Messina, uh, known for, of course, Loggins and Messina. Jim Fielder being a name a lot of people wouldn't know, but um, the band he ended up being one of the original members in was was quite successful, known as Blood, Sweat, and Tears. So uh, these guys, and even the ones I'm not mentioning, kind of all went on to do you know really cool things. A little aside here. So recently I was in my truck for some reason during the day, turned on talk radio, always a mistake, and I don't remember if it was Michael Savage or Sean Henney, but one of those guys. I don't want to, you know, wrongly name the guy doing it who was such an asshat. Was basically talking about how all of the the uh, the, uh, the uh, hippie peace anti-war crap of the '60s was a failure uh, and, and wrong, and 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 somehow got onto this song for what it's worth. 
Uh, and again, I, I just need to cover that for those of you like, well, well, I don't know that song. Stop, children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down. It's that song, if you didn't know. Um, how he didn't know where Buffalo Springfield was today. Uh, and I'm, he said, I think it was Michael Savage. I'm sure he's, I'm sure he's doing something as though Buffalo Springfield was the guy's name. And he was using this as proof of, of, of the failure of the message of peace and love from the hippies in the 60s. Um, here's the first problem with that. Of course, obviously, uh, Neil Young uh, <laughs> and Steven Stills and all these other guys have all continued to do amazing things and have amazing lives. Uh, so that's a problem. But the other problem is this song is not about anti-war gatherings. That's what I learned today. This song has absolutely nothing to do with the Vietnam War. I think it got adopted into that because it ended up fitting so well. But this was written by Buffalo Springfield, uh, Springfield guitarist Stephen Stills. This song was not about anti-war gatherings, but rather youth gatherings protesting anti-loitering laws and the closing of the West Hollywood nightclub Pandora's Box. Stills was not there when they closed the club, but I had heard about it from his bandmates. It's So, like, I had no idea about that either, but I think, like, you probably shouldn't use uh, things that you don't know anything about uh, to make your point, because it kind of makes you look dim. Um, now, this song ended up really fitting in with the sentiment of the anti-war movement, and I think it actually became more associated with it after it was over than, than, than while it was happening. Um, it became one of those songs that, I guess, producers looked up and when they were making a movie about the Vietnam War, kind of went, oh, that's a perfect fit, and threw it in. And I can't think uh, of a movie uh, about this time period that has to do with the Vietnam War, that has to do with the restlessness back home and stuff, where this movie didn't show up. Uh, I can't think of anybody who would probably put a soundtrack together kind of summing up the 60s and early 70s and the sentiment in this country that wouldn't include this song. So you can understand why people would, including me, think that that's where it was. But let me give you some of the lines of it other than the chorus that you know so well. There's something happening here. What, ex what it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there telling me I got to beware. Of course, we, I guess that starts the whole link into the war. I'm thinking of like Kent State or something like that. We're just talking about cops. That, that's all we're talking about. There's cops. The battle lines being drawn. Nobody's right if everybody's wrong. Young people speaking their minds, getting so much resistance from behind. And, and I think the concept of telling young people to shut up that they don't know what's going on is, is, is not exactly a new one. What a field day for the heat. So I think that when we hear that, we think of the, the, the weather, but I really think that's a reference to the police. A field day for the heat, because that was you know a, a, a phrase, the heat, uh, often applied to law enforcement at the time. A thousand people in the street singing songs and carrying signs mostly say hooray for our side. So I think when we see protests, that's, that's pretty indicative when there's counter-protests at all times. Paranoia strikes deep. Into your life it will creep. It starts when you're always afraid. You step out of line, the man come and take you away. This is actually a really great song. And I mean, I think a lot of people, that, like, including Mr. Michael Savage, don't know that, um, you know, Stills and Young come out of this, this group. You can certainly hear 
the the line of thought and philosophy of writing uh, that permeated that space uh, with its roots here in this this initial band again uh, Buffalo Springfield just a great song awesome one hit wonder to end the week with hope you enjoyed today's show uh, with that this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't something happening here What it is ain't exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I got to beware Think it's time we stop, children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going Everybody's right if everybody's wrong Young people speak in their minds Are getting so much resistance from behind Time we stopped, hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going Stop, hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going on.